Thankfully, I can project. Like you wouldn't believe. All right. This is my new projection, by the way. I wish those guys had turned me on. But uh, we've been wanting our kids to get the opportunity to participate in these sorts of things. And of course, they head off to Brookside Kids. And sometimes parents who, who've wanted that, they're actually going up to Sunday school and pulling their kids back down. And we thought, well, they're already in here for the first set. So we're going to be... Uh, for the next couple times we do communion, trying this out and what's it like for us to take communion together with our kids, having the opportunity to. And so today, um, I'm going to be preaching uh, from how our desire can either give birth to the things of God that produce life or how our desires can produce death. And ultimately, one of the things that communion represents is that God is our desire. He is the thing that brings the, the, the meeting of our desire that brings life to our world. And, and our sin, of course, is the opposite, right? And so as you take communion today, and Rob's going to be leading us in worship, and we'll do, um, we apologize, we do not have any gluten-free today. A um, little communication gap, and it was not Marie's fault, by the way. She's on top of these things, and she hates when it's not right. So give her a hug later. It was not her fault. And you just give her a hug and say, we know, we know, Marie. Okay, but as we go into today, and this happens, see Jesus, when he sat down with the disciples and he says, this is my body broken for you, and, and this is my blood that's for your forgiveness of sins, and as, we, and as you go up today, you, I would love for you to be placing before the Lord, what is it, God, that I've been using as my meeting of my own desire, maybe my entertainment, maybe my sin or whatever, and that you would use communion as God's way to open your heart to what it is that he wants to be, your bread of life. And so we ask you to come during these songs to the aisles and, and, and take communion. If you're not a believer, if you're one of the people, maybe I'm visiting, maybe I've, I don't know what I think of Jesus or whatever, this is a, a sacred ceremony for the believers. And so because of this, we ask that you don't, don't do it. And that might feel weird to you, like, are you going to think I'm weird? The person sitting in the seats, and I say this every time, and I always mean it, we think just the opposite. If we see a person who doesn't take communion, that person has honor to us. We look at that, that person's impressive. That person says, I know who I am, and, and maybe this isn't for me, or maybe I am a believer, but I'm locked in, in unforgiveness and in bitterness, or there's relationships that are broken that and until I fix them, I feel like the Lord's saying, wait, I don't know. But if today's a day where you feel it's inappropriate to come, I just want you to know that we're with you, and that's a blessing to us. But as it is, Thanks. Our Father, what can we say of a love so great of a Savior who would lay his life down for us? Of one who planned not just for our, our salvation, not just for some sort of um, high in the sky afterlife, who planned to redeem our lives, who planned to meet us in our hurts and our places of brokenness. What can we say to a, a sacrifice so great, to a love so ever-present? We want to worship and we want, to, we want our hearts to learn how to respond. And we want our thankfulness to somehow meet what our minds know is true. God, would you give us eyes to see how great your love how thick your mercy and, and, and how uh, unbelievably 
unexpected and ever present your grace. Would you teach us how to live out of it? Would you teach us to rise up with lives victorious and, and, and lives that meet our broken world in just the same, that we would be the ones who through your power would be bringing uh, wellness to the broken places and, and hope to the hopeless and that we would be the ones who um, in, in the power of your name and the power of your presence and, and because we've seen a love so great that we would give a love so great, that we would be thick in mercy, that we would be ever present in grace toward others might see that there's something true, that there's something worth having. Father, would you let us be as Jesus promised us, that we would be the light of the world, that all men would look upon uh, the works that you've done through us and glorify you. Thank you. Thanks. You can be, you can be seated. Kids, you guys can take off for Children's Church. Um, I was watching uh, a show this week where the main character ended up at uh, a big Christian event and, and everything was plastic and fake and you had to pay a lot of money to get in and it was the picture that it gave of Christianity. It, it wasn't just, you know, I mean, when, when people who don't like us make pictures of us, they'll make them as such and yet the thing that did ring true in it, because some of it was just dumb, you know, but the thing that ring, rang true was how often we pretend as Christians, as a group, as not just Brookside or whatever, but as a, as a, as a worldwide phenomenon, how often we pretend we're fine when we're not. How often we pretend that our lives are all perfect and nothing's wrong when they're not, and that, of course, was the theme, you know, the hypocrisy. And... If I haven't met you, I, I'm Steve Risky. I'm uh, the, the teaching uh, elder or pastor here. And always it is my heart, where, whether you've been coming to Brookside since, since the year 2001 or whatever, or, or, or maybe it's your first time here anywhere in between, that the one thing that you would come away with knowing is that the people aren't a bunch of frauds. That whatever we're, whatever we're working through, that, we, that we're real about it and that we try to talk with one another about it, that I hope that your impression is that these people really love their God but are really trying to figure it out together. And I, and I say that because sometimes when you're, when you're maybe new at a thing like this and you look around, one of the beliefs might be is that all, all of those people all know each other except for me and I'm the stranger here. And, and, or maybe all of those people have their lives put together and I'm the only one here who is falling apart. Or all of those people are just so happy and I'm the only one who might be grinding through depression or anxiety or something like that. And I gotta let you know, <laughs> we're all of those things together. Some people are soaring, and some people's lives feel as put together as they've ever been. And, and at other places, there are, there are those, who, uh, those whose lives are grinding along the bottom, those who've loved the Lord all their lives and are trying to figure it out, and those who are in grief. You are so welcome here because we're with you in it. So I just wanted to say that because it really it struck me as we go into this series here, we're on the second week of a series on the book of James. James was the, uh, the younger brother of Jesus. Mary and Joseph had children after Jesus. And, uh, and his whole book is predicated on this first line, counting it all joy. And so I, I you know, the, the picture of the calculator there, that we would be accountants of our life. That we, and, we, and we talked about this last week. We opened up with the opening passage, which is this one right here, where it says, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter or when you meet trials of uh, various kinds. For you know that the testing your faith produces steadfastness, endurance, perseverance. 
And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And when we, we, we looked closely at it, we looked at that first word, count, and we, we brought up the Greek there. So we had this egeomai. Uh, you can tell I've been really working on my Greek. Which, and I brought both definitions up that you would feel the sense of this word. It's not feel joyful and everything as though, as though we're pretending nothing's wrong or pretending nothing hurts. Pretending is not ever the Christian way. Fake it till you make it is not Christianity ever. But rather there is the spot where I can look at my life and I can be an accountant of it. I can lead my thoughts. I can lead my interpretation of the world so that I can say, despite the fact that this situation might not be pleasant to me and might be hurtful to me or might be painful to me, I can account it as the things that are in my life that are bringing me to the greatest of well-being. And when I do so as an accountant, I can lead my thoughts, I can, I can account, I can consider or deem things. I have that choice available. And, and we talked last week, what happens if I account poorly? And we talked about pain produces fear. Uh, this is a couple things here. This is just last week's. But it, it's so important to understand that this is what he said last week as we go flying forward. And Zach Times is telling me about this, that studies have shown that pain you choose and pain that happens to you literally get filed by different parts of your brain. They get experienced by different parts of your being. So consider a person who goes out running. And we talked about this last week. You, you start running unless you're one of, those, one of those people who it's all fine. You're one of those distance runners who's been putting in your miles. Have you ever had somebody talk to you about runner's high like it's real? No, it hurts. Okay. And your body's, stop it, stop it, please stop it. But when you've chosen it, those of us, you've, maybe you've done it, maybe you've exercised or whatever, you get to the end of it, and actually a, a sense of well-being comes when pain is chosen. But I want you to imagine, instead, somebody has locked a dog collar around your neck and tied it to a bike and has started riding, and you've had to run at the exact same pace that you otherwise would have, but now it's being done to you. You're the victim of it. Is that a weird enough victimization? Dog collar to a bicycle? Just rolling along here, people. Okay. But once you're the victim of it, the fear that overcomes, the sense of I can't, the sense of make it stop, if you think about the pains that are done to you, and by the way, you probably know this is true because almost all of the worst things that have happened to you in your life were done to you by you. I joked last week when I put my hand on the stove, no one put my hand to the stove, I did it. Um, the many, the cuts, the bruises, the hurts, the things I've done, the amount of times I've hit my head on stuff. We had in our old house uh, a shelf when you turn the corner, it was kind of a wide doorway, and you, you just go around it naturally, except for if your head's down and you're thinking and you're busy, and I slammed my head on that so many times, and it really hurt. If you had done the same thing to me with a stick, just beat me over the head, you know, like in Lion King, except for not as cool and it hurts the same way, I would have experienced it different. And as we allow ourselves to be poor accountants of our world, what happens is we begin to fear pain. And we make life patterns designed to avoid fear. And what happens is fear then begins to drive every sin and all of its destruction. So the person in who, who in their marriage has become afraid of upsetting their spouse, let's say, 
and the discord that comes from it. And so because I'm afraid of hurting my spouse, what I, what I begin to do is I begin to make these paths around, and, and I tell myself I'm doing virtuous things because I'm avoiding pain, and if I, there's no pain, it's good. But all my spouse begins to feel is avoidance. And they're not thinking, huh, look at him not painting me. All they see is that strange space and think, I must be unlovable. You see how that works? And that's just a, what it might look like in a marriage or at work or wherever. When, when we go to the next slide here, the trials that come like temptation or, or, or other sin against us, disappointments, persecution, lack of provision. As we allow ourselves to fear that pain, we begin to make more and more twisted and gnarled life patterns. But he said, as we begin to encounter trials and say, this is my chance to grow and, and to make the world right, what happens is maturity comes. Uh, the word perfection, once again, we tend to think of the student who never got a question wrong and does everything the very best it could ever be done. The Bible thinks much more along the lines of, of maturity, adulthood. Yeah, the, the children eat a certain way because they think the tasting of the food is what gives it goodness as opposed to the nutrition. I, I saw a, a meme this week. I like memes. It helps me keep up with the kids. Where it said, when you're a child, you think that coffee is the adultest drink ever. And when you're a teenager, you think alcohol, that's the adultest drink ever. But then when you get to adulthood, do you know what you realize is the most adult, adultest drink of all? Water. water. <laughs> Adults drink water because they want their bodies to feel okay. They don't want kidney stones and stuff, right? Okay, so they've become perfected concerning water. When you're a child, you're like, oh, gross water. Can I at least have some sugar in it by the time, right? You get the idea that what happens is when I want maturity, so we go to the next slide, I can, I can understand how life really works, and, and, I, and, I, and I don't run away like a child anymore, but instead, in this last one, it means that I'm prepared to join Jesus in returning good in the face of evil. I actually become one because I've accounted correctly how the world works. And when pain and trials come, I encounter them as an opportunity to make the world good and to actually grow up. Yes, it still hurts. And yes, it's still unpleasant. And our fears are hard driven into us. And I want to make a couple caveats. I made one last week. The kind of wounds and pains that have come, for, especially from abuses. They put twists on us that you don't just do a quick accounting away. I'll just account it as fine. It's not. Okay. And the, and the way we begin to mature ourselves to wellness is not just sort of like a snap decision, but it's very careful work in reinterpreting our world and seeing it in new ways in light of the redemption of Jesus. And it takes work. But I wanted to say another thing. I got uh, one of the college students pushed back really hard, and she was super right. We want to be careful to, uh, I said, your beliefs decide your emotions. And I meant, I, I have that clinical counseling degree. I meant it in the sense of your emotional response to your situations. Because we also think of our emotions in what uh, counselors or, or psychologists would call your mood. So depression and anxiety, these are, we call them mood disorders because it's not, uh, I saw a person in an alley with a knife charging at me and I had fear, I must have anxiety disorder? No, that's fear, right? That's, that's a response to a situation. But if I'm carrying with me a pervasive fear that won't go away, the sense that something's wrong and I can't get rid of it, that's a mood. It's, it's, a, it's a pervasive sense, right? In the end, all of our localized emotions do begin to pile up to our mood, but we don't want to cheapen how difficult it is to work through broken mood disorders. Those who work through depression and anxiety, I wasn't talking about just simple things like the, the broadness. I actually just mean the way we handle our situations and our emotional response to them. 
And that's important because if you are working through really heavy things like depression and anxiety, and I just said, well, your believing's all wrong, and it can make it sound like if you just rub a little belief on it, it fixes everything. We don't play silly games like that here. With that said, he then tells us how we actually begin to handle it. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, and once again, wisdom here, not meaning, Lord, I need, I need to know you what you'd want me to do in this situation. Should I buy the red car or the blue car? Um, red car, duh. Uh, but wisdom. <laughs> wisdom is, is uh, like life philosophy. It's like if your life philosophy is difficult, if you're struggling with this count-it-all joy philosophy that James and Jesus, well, James got it from Jesus, that Jesus is offering to us, Ask God, and he gives generously. He can actually help you begin to be a count-it-all joyer. It's like a verb now. A count-it-all joyist? And a joyist? I don't know. But uh, one who actually does this, he wants to give generously to all without reproach. He's not going to look at you and go, well, you're not perfect enough for me. If we want his life philosophy, he wants to help us actually live it. And it will be given to him. But let, let this person ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose they'll receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. What James means here is that the person who is on one hand saying, my revenge and anger is the real life philosophy that fixed the world. But also I want Jesus's count it all joy whenever you encounter many trials. And I'm going to try to live both life philosophies at the same time. Can you imagine how unstable a life that is? James does. He says, what do you call it? Like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed about. So now... He begins to jump in. And, and James, unlike Paul, if you've ever, we've, when we work through a Pauline letter, Pauline, theological, Pauline, it means Paulish, the ones Paul wrote, a Pauline letter, he has incredibly strong organization. And any, Paul, any of Paul's letters can be put into an, uh, a simple outline, and, and he's just great that way, super highly trained. James is kind of more like a bulldozer, and he's going to start dozing at you right now. And one of the things that's difficult for the, all the commentaries is it's hard to organize his thoughts. So what we're going to do is we're just going to let him come one at a time as he delivers them. So kind of we'll put on our seatbelt, and we're going to start flying into James' count-it-all-joy world. Here we go. Number one, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like the flower of the grass, he'll pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers away the grass. Its flower fails. And his beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Okay. Everyone knows. Everyone knows. Study after study shows that if you start at poverty and, and begin to add more and more annual income to a person, their happiness in life generally goes up. The current number, by the way, is up until about $75,000. And this is in the United States. In other words... When you get to about the amount of income where you no longer have to worry about your needs being met. And then after that, after $75,000, we cease to become happier no matter how much more money gets added. But that's not what James means here. James looks at this world and knows that he has people who are really significantly dealing with, uh, excuse me who are really significantly dealing with where are their needs going to be met. They don't even have refrigerators to keep their food for a couple of days. Every single day, unless you were super rich in that world, you did not know where your food was coming from. You had to go out, you had to find it, you had to get it, you had to continue to grab hold of it. They lived 
all of them below what we would think of as the poverty line. And he says to them, you're an exalted one, using the count it all joy mentality. Because they have this ability to say, if they've counted it, if they've looked and said, no matter what comes, I have the opportunity to look to my father and say, you're going to provide. And the more he provides, the closer I am with my father. I have that opportunity. By counting it joy, by seeing where God is in it, I have an opportunity. But the rich person in James's accounting method is incredibly at danger of saying, I've got it taken care of. I'm fine. Who needs God? Who needs God? This is the American problem, you know, because we really have our needs met, by and large. And I, and I know you might be thinking, wow, I really struggle with my needs. But when you compare yourself to, A, most of the people in the world, and certainly most of the people throughout history, you'd have to recognize how often and how many of your needs are met. But here's the problem. The more my needs are met by me, the more I am likely to think I can meet my needs, which sounds fine, until I, my next emotional decision will be, I must meet my needs. I must keep me safe. I live in a tempestuous world, a tempest, a broken world that flies up and down, and it comes at me, and no matter what I do, I can't make me feel safe. Why do you think that at the richest point in history, anxiety is on the rise faster than it's ever been before? It's because we have so much access to taking care of it for ourselves. We actually, in our emotional belief system, have decided that we probably have it taken care of ourselves. And once it's on us, anxiety reigns because if it's all on me, I have to take care of me. And how can I keep myself safe in this world? James has figured it out. The lowly brother has access to something that the rich person might miss, depending on your accounting method. And he goes on and says this, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. James just always uses the masculine, but you women too, us brothers and sisters, every one of us, blessed is the man or woman who remains steadfast under trial. We have to talk about blessed for a moment, because most of us hear that and say something like, God wants to give a gold sticker of reward to the people who do it right. And we're like, I did it right, Lord. Where's my reward? That's not how blessedness works. Blessedness is something like eating vegetables, which I find gross, by the way. I have to really struggle to get even enough sort of veggies in me. But you probably know that I've been complaining about vegetables for a while. But I understand intellectually that as I eat well, as I eat more or less healthy, that well-being will come. And as I choose to live in a blessed way, in a way that actually works, well-being arrives. Blessedness is the natural response in God's economy, in God's way of thinking of the world. The natural response of if I do this, this way works and brings forth sort of well-being and, and shalom-type peace in my heart, right? So he says... That shalom kind of well-being piece is yours if you learn how to remain steadfast under trial, which is actually repeating the idea from the beginning then, right? For when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. We're going to keep it all male here. This is the bad one. Only men have this problem, right? Okay. Well, he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. 
Look at that. So we want to look closely at this. Let's start at the beginning. The one who has well-being because well-being, shalom, peace of the sort of relationship with God because he's remained steadfast under trial and there's a crown of life. We're going to come back around to that and so I'm going to leave off for a second and I want to get to this bit here because if we're not thinking carefully, we might look at our trials. We might look at our broken places. We might look at the bad things who come and say, oh, God's doing this to me. And we'll shake our fists at the sky and say, why? Why do you hate me, God? What's going on? Why are you doing this to me? But it's super important to understand, and this is why James is so forceful here, because he's just talked about trials. He's just talked about all these things who come and how God can use them that we might mistakenly assume that God is doing it to us on purpose. The fact is, brokenness comes into this world because of us. It is the choosing of us humans that the brokenness came and that death has reigned and all these sorts of things. God's plan and the thing that God is doing is not causing death to happen to us, but rather teaching us how to escape all of the brokenness that we brought on ourselves. So when the trials come, although they are not God's fault and God did not do it, God still wants to teach you how to live in the midst of it that you can live up and out and over all of it, okay? And so James says what's actually happening when you're tempted is, uh, so we begin, a person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Let's check out that word desire. I brought the Greek out for you. Epithumia. The Y, by the way, is the letter U. So we say dynamite, but it comes from the word, uh, it looks like dynamos, but it's dunamos. Dynamite sounds way cooler than dunamos. But epithumia. Desire, craving, longing, lust, desire for what's forbidden, that sense that my heart needs it. Remember like the child, but I wanted that thing. And if we're going to talk about desire, we're going to have to look at it very closely. So if you will, I've, I've put a couple desires up here. Number one, the easiest to grab and, and the place where us humans failed first, hunger for food and for provision. God gave you a body that runs out of fuel and needs more. And, and in Eden, what we would have done is when our fuel was running low, we would have eaten and we'd have said to God, thank you so much for providing. And he said, I love providing. And we would have had a party together. God loved meeting our provision until the day we looked at that fruit and said, mine, I'll do it. I'll take care of me. And our hunger and our, and our sense of needing of, of shelter and clothes and provision that will always produce hunger in us. But how about this one? The longing to be known, the longing to be loved, the longing for others to draw near and say, I see you there and I like you there. I see you. Now, there are those who see you and don't like you. That rejection, that stings more than anything. And so the fear arises and we shut our hearts, not letting others see us. But when we're shut off and closed off to others, our hearts begin to starve because our hearts are made. Just like your body runs out of fuel, your heart is made to be known and loved. Okay, there's another desire. How about this one, the yearning to matter? That sense that who am I and do I even matter in this world? Do I have a purpose? And we ask, is it going to be my job? Is it going to be my, is it going to be my hobby or, or how I affect other people? But if you had somebody look at you and say, meaningless, worthless, useless, and they meant it, you'd feel it. That sense that what does my life do? You live every day looking for your life to matter. How about this one? The thirst for the ultimate. You're made to know God. God is the ultimate. We try all sorts of ways to get that sense of ultimate. We try thrill-seeking, and we, some of us try drugs or whatever. We try God. We try religion. We try 
uh, you know, sexual immorality, all these ways for our soul to connect to the greatness that is supposed to be uh, God created us to know him, right? And all of these hungers, so I've got all four of them, and they're nice and tidy in their four quadrants on my screen. But what actually happens is they all mix up together in your soul, and they look something like this. Desire. And it's kind of shady. It's kind of hard to see, because cause that's what your desire is like in your soul. It doesn't go, huh, I'm feeling a little low on the intimacy scale. I think that I should have some human connection. It just says something like, dissatisfied. Hungry. And unless we become good accountants of our soul and learning what's going on, it just sort of arrives like that. Desire. And it says desire conceives, and if you've learned anything about conception, birds, beads, or whatever, it's going to need something to conceive with. If that was new information to you, by the way. When a man and a woman love each other very much. Okay, no. So sin and, and, and desire, they... Uh, so what happens is your desire, it meets some object of its desire. The person who's hungry walks down the street and walks past a bakery and sees the chocolate cake and goes, oh. my problem recently has been those cinnamon loaves at Flatlands. I don't know if Ben's here, I don't see him, but my word, those things call to me. So I have a desire called food, and, and Ben wants to meet it with those cinnamon loaves, which got to be about 4,822 calories a pop. They're so good. Must be like a stick of butter at each one. I don't know. You see what happens? My desire meets something, and they get together. I don't know if it's a sin to eat a cinnamon loaf, but every sin you've ever sinned, you had a God-given desire. The desire's not sin, but it meets some object of desire that says, I can meet myself. I can take care of it myself. When I steal, I will say, it's, it's a matter of meeting my provision in my own, by my own hand at, at your expense, by the way. When I lie, it's trying to create a reality that's more comfortable for me at your expense, by the way. You, you know how this works. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Maybe you've lived far enough, because most of the time when we first sin, we, we're still enjoying the, uh, the taste of it. But over time, it begins to grow more and more brokenness in our world. The broken marriages, the broken relationships, the broken relationship with God is the most important. The sense that life doesn't work, that sense of purpose, that no matter how I do and no matter how high I climb up the pole, I just can't seem to get that sense that, that you know, that uh, when you eat enough, you're full. That soul full feeling like I've finally been fulfilled. And it begins to reign over us. This is how everyone's soul works. You've got desire, I've desire. Desire, when it finds its way out through sin, when I take care of it myself, death comes. So James says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of course, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Oh, there's so much here. This, this is so packed. And I want to try to like very carefully unpack it because the first thing that we're going to want to do, um, and I don't remember if I included this slide uh, later, Christy, but I'm going to want to come back to it. So just put a little thumbnail there. But we need to look back at our desires. 
He says every good and perfect gift comes from above. And so going to the, to the hunger for food and to those four desires I put up, all of these are what rule a soul. Your soul cannot feel okay without them. If you feel purposeless, if you feel like life doesn't connect to anything bigger than you, if you feel like you're not connected to others, if you feel like it doesn't have the provision to keep you through, you will experience feelings of death, feelings of hunger, and you will look and you'll say, I need to have it met. And James says, all of the ones that actually work, every good and perfect gift comes from our Father. And so desire can be, go, keep going forward, keep going forward. Desire can be met by God's gift. This is one of the things that we do with communion. It does not just remember that Jesus died for us, but it is a way of telling ourselves over and over and over again that God wants to provide through His way not just the connection to him, which is a big part, the sense that our lives and our souls matter because you matter to eternity. And no matter what this world does, no matter whether you get laid off from your job or promoted at your job, whether or not you, you succeeded or failed, no matter what, that you are one of the eternal ones. And all of the real purpose that God made you for is going to be experienced in eternity. The real you, the one that if, if we got in a time machine and met 10,000 years into eternity, the one who's glorious beyond words and whose purpose is purposeful beyond words, the real you, that one, that's what your heart's made for. And when we feel dissatisfied in our world, he wants to show us, I've got a thing and you just wait, just see it. And he wants us to connect to one another. All of those one another's in the scriptures, the way we love one another, care for one another, speak blessing to one another, the way we serve one another, the way we give each other a holy kiss. I'm not sure what that meant in their world, but a good handshake I think will suffice. But <coughs> if you've read through the New Testament, it's in there a lot though. Greet each other with a holy kiss. I don't know. But I do know this. When we begin to cordon ourselves off from one another, play Christian fakes with one another, when we begin to judge one another, when we begin to say, ooh, you're not acceptable here because your sin is piled a little higher than I can handle, when we begin to reject and abandon one another, our souls ache because this community here, this is the, what we call the church, is God's design to meet that. And, and that desire for provision to say, God, if you've given it to me, I trust it's enough. And, and even though my heart tells me I need a Corvette to be happy, and it tells me that a lot, I trust that my minivan is all the provision I need. My minivan holds way more stuff, by the way. But God's gift, he wants us to be accounting our world correctly and seeing that what he gives us really can satisfy. Because as soon as we say, God doesn't love me, God doesn't have it for me, I will go and I'll meet it in my own way and think of all the brokenness that you've brought into your world using sin rather than God's gift. And when God's gift is full grown, he says it brings the crown of life. So I didn't put it back in there. So Christy, can you go back to that slide now? So let's look at this very carefully. Uh, so she's got to jump back. This is bad slide making by me. Here we are. Ready? Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived by the cinnamon butter cake at Flatlands or whatever it is that you're starting. Do not be deceived that you need entertainment. Do not be deceived that you need the richest of foods. Do not be deceived that that person outside of your marriage who seems so much more satisfying because they say nicer things to you. Do not be deceived that by trying to just make the world feel good that you can find the life you're looking for. But rather... 
Understand that God's gift, which is hard to find because it comes through steadfast and it's often found on the other side of our trials. This is why he's saying these things. It comes from him, our father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow. He wants to bring you the good life. But the problem is it is so often waiting on the other side of trials. But he says this, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What the heck? See, the Jewish people, they knew that they were supposed to set aside the very best and the first of their cows and their crops or whatever as a, as, as a gift to God. And so God is saying that when he made creation, he set aside humanity, us, as, as his gift to himself. I made me a little gift, God said. <laughs> And we know this. We know that, that God's people, uh, when they attain to their full maturity, are supposed to be the bride of Christ and, and that we're supposed to rule earth or, or uh, the new earth with him. And we have all these identities that are brought sort of like, but they seem misty and murky sometimes to us because they feel afar off. But he's saying, don't you understand that when you learn to deal with trial the way I'm teaching you how, you will be the sort who's prepared to help rule heaven who's prepared to help rule the new earth, who's prepared for the fullness of what God made for you, that you 10,000 years into eternity, God's trying to help you become that person now. And he knows that as long as you feel torn and ripped apart from that person, your heart is going to ache. Your heart's going to feel unfulfilled and it's going to keep searching, whether in dumb stuff like drugs or affairs or, or in less or more socially acceptable things like food and entertainment or in checking out or whatever, but your soul will not rest until it comes to the place where it meets its real identity. And that's what he's saying. God has set you aside for something you can't imagine, but you can't reach it by serving your pleasure and running away from the trials. So now moving up, this is where I told you we are going to circle back around, which is why he began this paragraph by saying, blessed is the man or the woman who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life. A crown is rulership. It's not a, a, an award like a plaque or, or, or a trophy. It's actually a sign of authority. And when we think of humanity's true story, Ben, you guys can come up. When we think of humanity's true story, we as people, Starting back with Adam and Eve, they were, it said, take dominion of the earth. There were all these like crown things given to them. But when they said to God, no, I'll do it my own way. I will be my own bread. I will, I will take care of it myself. Adam's crown, the, in his curse, it says that thorns will come up out of the ground. It's just only sort of poetic to say that Adam's crown turned to thorns. And our Jesus who died on the cross with our cursed crown on his head, with all of our brokenness and all of our, our rebellion and all our saying to God, I will make it myself, and it kept turning to death. He wants to teach us how by suffering and dying and coming back to life, by learning to walk through trials with him, we can experience the life. And that's the, the fullness of what God has made you for. So this learning to walk through trials thing, it's not just a little philosophy of life to, today make, to make today feel better. It is God's plan for you to reach all that your heart ever desired to be. Let's worship together and then close out. As we start to um, pull to a close today, I guess I want to I wanna call to challenge. I want to call to challenge one of two things. Either the situation that you have been avoiding or the sin that you've been clinging on to. And here's what I mean. The, the, the relationship that you've known you need to get right or the, or the, um, 
or the place of pain that you've just been avoiding and avoiding and, and your life hurts like an ache, but the thought of going into it feels like just the sharpest of pain and you're not ready for it. Or maybe it's the sin, you've just been hanging on to it, you've been saying to God, I, I don't know how to let it go, God, because if I do, I'll starve, and I don't know how. I don't know how, Lord, to, to, to have you be life and light there. You're supposed to be so satisfying, and I don't know how to get it. This is what I'd love for you to be praying about this week. This is what I'd love for you to be talking to the Lord about. Where is my fear, Lord, keeping me from you? Father, I ask that you would give us that kind of wisdom, that kind of piercing insight into our own souls. We so often just let our souls run its own business and not pay attention. And would you teach us how to be accountants who look carefully and who balance the books in a way that brings life instead of death to us, to our world, and to others. We want to be life bringers and we want to be life livers. We're tired of suffering in, in our little stale deaths that we've made thinking that we've kept ourselves safe. Teach us to overcome fear to find life. Thanks. Amen. So next week, uh, it'll be the middle school Sunday where the middle schoolers will be up there. Um, and I want to challenge you as parents, I, like, I will never ever be the legalist who's like, hey, you got to get yourself to church or else you're bad. But these opportunities for your kids, if you're hoping that they're going to come to adulthood, I just got two things you can sit or stand, I don't care. Uh, if you're hoping that they'll come to adulthood, having learned those things and experienced those things, it can't happen if they're not here. I was struck recently, and this thought's been uh, weighing on my mind. At the end of last year, Jack missed his 10th day of school, and, and, and we got the letter saying, if you go to 11, there's going to be Sunday school. That's 10 out of 180. That's 5% of, of his year. If you miss more than 5%, you just, you can't even learn enough. You're just going to have to take it over or do something, right? If we were to extrapolate that across 52 Sundays, that would mean if you missed like three or four Sundays, the school teachers would be like, oh, your kids haven't learned enough to keep going. Now we're not going to be that way with each other. We're not going to be flunking your kids. That's, that's crazy talk. And yet, if you're hoping that your kids will come to adulthood understanding and knowing those things, and you haven't had them being a part of the community to learn it, you shouldn't be surprised if they don't. This isn't a, this isn't a we think badly of you, which is we hope the best for your kids, and we want to be a part of that. So middle school Sunday next week, and way back in the past, those who remember when we used to have the room divided, and we were just in that half because that's how many of us there were. We used to just get by pizza and have it here. Well, next Sunday, we are going to, after church, my daughter is celebrating in the back. She remembers. She's like three years old. Okay, but we are going to have food here. Um, pay attention to the, to the Tuesday text or whatever for any, uh, but we just, we want to like get to know each other and get to hang out and doing potlucks this time of year is really tough. And so we're just going to have food afterward. We've okayed it with uh, the union people, how much we're allowed to have, what the rules are, but we're going to have food. Just plan to stick around and, and love people and have a blast for a while. So just don't plan something right after church next week and have a great one. We'll see you then.